Hey everybody, welcome to the first ever Dave Pash podcast. I'm your host, ESPN announcer, and 20-year voice of the Arizona Cardinals, Dave Pash. It's been a long time since I have done something like this. As I mentioned, I've been with the Arizona Cardinals for two decades. My first year was in 2002. Shortly after I took the job with the Cardinals, I started working for ESPN. So during that time, I've done games, and that's all I've done on television and radio. And I love doing games. I would never quit my day job. It's my passion. It's what I do best. But I also love talking all sports and interviewing guests especially. It takes me back to some of my years prior to coming to the Cardinals. I graduated in 1994 from Syracuse. I worked in Morgantown, West Virginia for about 10 months, then moved to Detroit, working for an all-sports radio station there for two years, and then worked for two years in Chicago. And part of my duties there was hosting a nightly radio talk show on WMAQ 670 AM during the last dance the final run for the Chicago Bulls. So when the Cardinals and I came up with this idea for a podcast, since there are so many podcasts out there, big reason we thought this could be unique was because of the guests. So we're going to have on guests from all walks of life, former and current players, coaches, broadcasters, from a variety of sports, talking Cardinals, NFL, and much more. Of course, the priority at the Dave Pash podcast was making sure that the first edition had on an incredible guest. I couldn't think of a better way to kick it off than with Hall of Famer Kurt Warner. Coming up, Kurt's going to talk about his days with the Cardinals, his proudest moment as an NFL quarterback, and who he confided in about his retirement during his final season in the NFL. Some stories that maybe you haven't heard before. What did Kurt say to the team at halftime of Super Bowl 43 after the interception by James Harrison? What did Kurt tell Larry Fitzgerald the very first time they spent time with one another? Kurt will give his opinion on whether he thinks Larry is done or if he'll play football again in 2021. I got to know Kurt when he was a player with the Cardinals. We're going to talk a little bit about our relationship. Like the time I played basketball with Kurt at the YMCA and what he did that had me amazed. Also helping Kurt prepare for life after football, which turned out to be as a broadcaster. And what he told me outside the Cardinals locker room just moments after the Super Bowl loss to the Steelers that left me absolutely speechless. We'll discuss American Underdog, the Kurt Warner story, Kurt's new movie, which comes out in December, and why what wasn't in the movie might actually be the greater story. Without further ado, let's get you to the interview. Here is Hall of Famer Kurt Warner on the first edition of the Dave Pash Podcast. Kurt, I've got so many things I want to talk to you about, <laughs> talk with you about today, man. Uh, I know you got work to do, so I won't keep you too long. But I really appreciate you doing this. It's the first time I've ever done a podcast. The last time I did any sort of talk show was in Chicago in 1997-98. Wow! When I was just coming out of college, and that happened to be the last dance year. So I remember all we did was talk about Michael Jordan. But all we're going to do right now is talk about Kurt Warner. And the life you weren't of talking Warner. about arena football then? Because that's, <laughs> that's where I was back in 1997, playing a little arena football at the time. And then you became a movie star. <laughs> and here we are talking about American Underdog, the Kurt Warner story. So it's going to be released December 10th. And I remember talking to you a few years ago and you told me, hey, I'm going to be doing this movie. How did it come about? Who approached you? And at first, were you hesitant or were you like, this is great, let's do it? I think I wrapped my mind around it years ago because when I came onto the scene and the first year, the magical year, win the Super Bowl, win the MVP, you do the Disney commercial, and as soon as that all played out, it came down to, oh my gosh, this is a movie that's made for Disney. Like, this is a Disney movie the way this has played out. So 
early on, people were talking about that. And obviously, there was a whole lot of work to do, you know, before this would take place. But at least, you know, people said it out there like, hey, if this keeps going like this, this could be a movie. And so that's kind of where you first initially go, okay, you know, we'll we'll see. I see what people are saying. And as things played out and having the success that I did and, and getting to the Hall of Fame, I think there was a big part of us that thought this, you know, when you look at other movies that are out there, that you know, the Rudy movies, uh, you know, Invincible and, you know, Michael Orr's movie, those, those different things you go, well, if those are made into a movie, this one probably will be as well because when you look at the entirety of the journey, it's probably greater than any of those other ones. So, you know, all of that stuff goes into it. But, you know, it was shortly after I retired where people reached out to us and said, hey, we, we want to make this movie, we want to get into this. And so now it's been about a decade in the making as we've gone through different writers and, and different things. And Brendan and I always said that, yeah, it would be great. It would be cool to have a movie about your life. But we're not interested in just doing a movie. If we're going to do the movie, we want to make sure it's done right. And so we've been through a number of writers because of that, because they, you know, get bits and pieces of it where we're like, that's not the story we want to tell. Mm. And so that's why it's taken so long. But it's just funny how God works and the journey. And sometimes you're like, okay, why is it, why is it taking so long? I said that with my career. At times we've said that with the movie. And now I, I'm not sure there could be a better time with the idea of the underdog story, my underdog story. Throughout this movie will be a number of underdog stories tied into where we are, you know, as a country, where we are in the world with everything that's going against us and so many people that have struggled this past year with the pandemic and kind of find themselves in a, in a position like I was for a long time, like, okay, what's next? How do I get back to where I want to go or how, to fulf- how do I fulfill my dream with all of these challenges? So I, it's just kind of amazing that I think it's coming out at the perfect time um, as we're getting back on track and people are going to need some inspiration and some encouragement that, hey, no matter where your circumstances have you right now, this doesn't have to be where it ends. And I think that's a message that, that our country needs right now. So I'm, I'm excited for the timing of this movie. And now it's just about making sure that we get it right. You mentioned Rudy, and I know somebody, I can't say his name, who played with Rudy who said, ah, it was fabricated a little bit. It right. was made for Hollywood. Mm-hmm. That wasn't like exactly the story. Have you seen the finished product, and is it really the Kurt Warner story? We're not finished yet. Okay. Uh, we did actually just see a screening uh, about a week ago, the first screening that we've seen. And so it's, it's going through the testing process now where they do a lot of these screenings and they get their feedback and how does it flow and how does it test and all of that stuff. So we saw the, the first rendition of it. Uh, it is the Kurt Warner story. That's, I think, the interesting thing about our story is there's, there's so many layers to it when, you know, you tie in myself and, and Brenda's story and, and Zach being a part of this and his underdog story. And then, obviously, the, the, the football journey, you don't have to make a whole lot up. You don't have to, um, you know, design a whole lot for the movies or, or, or put in your movie magic. There's just a lot of really, really good moments. And I think that's one of the hardest things right now as we're putting this together. There's so much stuff. Sure. It's not trying to do too much, but still trying to tell the whole story. And so, uh, so far the testing has been great. I mean, it's been off the charts, which is exciting. Um, for me, I'm everything I do, I want it to be the best. I sure. want it to be excellent. So uh, I still want to shape it a little bit more because I think there's more potential for it. But we're excited about where the movie is right now and the team we've got in place for the movie. My kids absolutely love Zachary Levi. They love him <laughs> from Chuck. Okay. And then Shazam, which right. was a great movie. So when – and, and my you know, kids know you. They absolutely love your story. And so when they found out that Zachary Levi was playing you, mm-hmm. they were psyched. Like you couldn't <laughs> think of a better person right. uh, to, to play Kurt Warner. What did you think of the choice? And how much time have you spent with Zachary talking about yeah. you? You know, it's funny. When you think about these roles initially, it's like, oh, it just got to be somebody that looks like me. And so there's definitely that resemblance. There's times even when you see scenes from the movies or pictures that they take where my kids will even be like, dang, that that looks just like you, Dad. (laughs) Um, And then there's the second level of it is you get to know Zachary, the quality of person. And that's always important that I I think to be able to hit what we want to hit and share our story and share who I am, you need to find somebody that understands, you know, the the things that, that make me tick and the things that make me go. And Zachary is 
that quality of person as well uh, with his optimism, his positivity, uh, you know, his perspective on life, his faith, all of those different things playing into it. And so we did get uh, a chance and we've gotten a chance, you know, through this process to get to know each other fairly well. And that has been a fun process. And and it's fun to know that you've got somebody playing you uh, that really represents what you're all about. And then the last piece is I think he did a great job. I think he did a really, really good job of playing me and and understanding the essence of of what we're trying to get. So um, I think we hit a home run as well. I mean, I got a superhero playing me. How does it get any better than that? I can always tell my kids, right? It it took a superhero to play me in my movie. But but it really has been – I think it was a great choice from from so many different perspectives. I'm I'm glad that you're happy because imagine if you had somebody you'd you're like, what? They cast this dude who happens to be like 5'6 and 130 pounds who can't throw a ball or yes. is a jerk or whatever. So I'm glad you're happy with the choice. What about Anna Paquin? I've watched The Irishman, I think, now three times. I don't know if okay. you've seen it. But I have not. It's awesome. It's three and a half hours, but it's awesome. <laughs> but Anna Paquin plays Robert De Niro's daughter in the movie. She doesn't say anything the whole movie until the end. It's really well done. Wow. And she plays Brenda. Mm-hmm. Have you had a chance to communicate with her at all? What did you think of the selection of Anna Paquin to play your wife? Brenda and Anna have had a lot more conversation. You know, as the start of the process, she reached out, and so they've built a nice friendship. Obviously, through the process, I've gotten to know Anna uh, a little bit, not as much as Brenda. But I, I think, again, knowing who she is off the screen yeah. – is what excites you because they are very similar in a lot of ways. They're both very strong. Uh, they both have that edge to them. They're not going to get pushed around. Um, and, you know, it's it's that strength that always drew me to, to Brenda. And Anna definitely has that as well. And so those things are fun when you go, oh, ah, she's got that. So it's going to be easy for her to portray some of that on the screen. And so I thought Anna did a great job as well. I think a lot of, you know, the casting in this movie, we've got some some great stars, we've got some great people, and they did a great job in their roles. And so, you know, that's kind of the unique thing when you watch it because I was only on set for maybe six or seven days total. So you see bits and pieces and you don't know how it's going to play out. So when you actually see it on the big screen, you're like, oh, my gosh. That he, he's awesome or she's awesome and, and you know, played a, a perfect role. And so, um, again, that's the fun part of it is that you see all these different storylines coming together and, and the casting was really great for that. You're still working for NFL Network and I, I go back to when you're thinking about retirement you're playing with the Cardinals and you said, hey, you and I were friends and you said, can you help me get started yeah. in, in broadcasting and kind of show me the ropes? So I come up to your house and show you how to put together a board, and we call some games off the television. But part of the rite of passage for me to be able to do this with you was to go play basketball with you at the Y. <laughs> and the first thing is, like, I'm like, hey, I'm going to go play basketball with Kurt. Like, let's hope he doesn't get hurt. And if he gets hurt, like, I wasn't there. <laughs> and the other thing was, you put a mouth guard in. I'm like, okay, this dude's serious. Like, I knew he was competitive about football, and now he wants to talk about broadcasting, but now we're going to play basketball. First of all, you're a really good player, and I wasn't very good. I played a couple years in high school, but <laughs> your competitiveness is what stood out to me. And we're playing at the Y. Right. I'm like, these guys might be out and be like, it's Kurt Warner. I'm going to try to hurt him. I'm going to try to take him out. But uh, you kept scoring on them. They couldn't touch him, man. <laughs> well, I mean, it's- that's the funny thing is that a lot of people, when they watched me in between the lines on the football field, they never saw that piece yeah. because when you're in that type of leadership role, it's like, okay, don't ever let them see you sweat. You know, there's a competitiveness that, that drove me. Obviously, you don't get to this point without being competitive, but you didn't see it very often. I, I tried to make sure that you saw it when you needed With to. With Todd Haley, you saw it. Well, yeah, I mean, at, at times, but, but it was just yeah. I was much more reserved on yeah. the football field. And so a lot of people are surprised when they see me in, in other environments and they're like, holy cow. I mean, <laughs> And, you know, I've, I've always just kind of taken the approach that I don't do a lot of things. I, I don't have a lot of hobbies, but everything I do, I want to be great at it. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if I'm playing pickup basketball. Now, it doesn't matter if I'm 50 years old. I, I want to play and I want to compete and I want to get guys that are younger than me that are going to push me because um, that's something that drives me. And it's funny because you say that because my wife will – we have a little gym at the house now. So um, my wife will walk in and she'll see that intensity and the competitiveness going on. And when I'm done, she's like, why do you even play? Do you <laughs> even do you even have fun playing? And I have to tell her, and, and you might be able to relate to this, is just that it's not ha-ha, yeah, it's fun. 
to me, fun is being able to compete against someone and, and having that opportunity yeah. in a moment to react to what that guy's doing and see if I can outthink them or outplay them. And that's fun to me. And my wife doesn't quite understand that. She thinks fun should be just laughing and giggling and having a good time. It's a different kind of fun, but it is something that I've tried to apply to everything. Even as I've got into broadcasting, yeah. it's like, okay, what? how can I be different? How can I bring something unique to the table? And how can I be great at this? Because – when you retire, and when we had that conversation, I'm thinking, I've spent my whole life playing football. I don't know if there's anything else I can do. I, I don't know if I can be good at anything else. And so that's a, a whole new challenge when you enter uh, retirement and, and you decide to go down a different path. But it's been a great challenge. And that's, I think, one of the things that helps you from being Brett Favre and coming back every other year is you dive into something else and go, okay, here's a new challenge in a new way. And you can sink your teeth into it. And you try to apply a lot of the things that you applied when you were playing to off the field kind of ventures. You do studio and you do games. And I've worked with so many different coaches, former players, and everybody that I do a game with, they always say the games are better because it <laughs> feels like you're part of it. Those competitive yeah. juices flow. There's a rush when you're calling a game. And I don't know when you and I were talking 12 years ago and you and I were going through it, if that's something you thought about. But now that you've had a chance to call games, do you feel that? Do you feel like you're still kind of a part of it when you're in that environment as opposed to just being in a studio? Because you're doing TV games and then you do you know, Monday Night Football for right. Westwood One. The best part of playing the game and playing live sports is having to react to what happens in front of you. Can I react in three or four seconds to what the defense is throwing at me and what our play is and, and, and get the ball into the right guy's hands and, and do all of that stuff? Now, when you're calling games, obviously, you get a little more than three or four seconds. But that, to me, is the part that I love. If, if I go into the studio, which I love my studio gig and we have a blast, but they're telling me the topics the day before and I get a chance to do research sure. and think about it and all that stuff, and it's great. I mean, we, we have a great time and, and it's a fun challenge. But, you know, in the moment – if you're the play-by-play -play guy and something huge happens, you've, you've got two seconds to figure out how you're going to call this with your excitement. As a color guy, you know, I've got 30 seconds to be able to break down everything I saw on that play. And so that's what I love so much about calling games is I have to react. You know, and mm -hmm. that's the dynamic that I always loved in playing was the reaction piece. And so you'll never find anything that's quite like playing you know, in a Super Bowl and playing at the highest level. But that's why, to me, it's the next best thing is calling games because I do. I have to see something. i got to put it all in there, and then I've got to regurgitate it to somebody that may not know what I know and make it make sense to them and make myself sound smart and all of that good stuff, which is what I love about the games on top of you're in the environment, sure. you're with the fans, all of those things that add – pieces to the puzzle that you know are better than just you know going into a, a cold studio with your three or four guys the energy is is always so much better calling a game so we had that when you were here with the cardinals that uh, period of time when you were thinking about broadcasting the year before that the super bowl year and we're going to get into all, all the details of actually what happened and playing but i do want to talk about our relationship a little bit because i'm, I'm curious a couple things uh, you started coming over to our house for a for a Bible study. We had about twenty or thirty guys over at the house. I think Jeremy Urban came and uh, maybe a couple other guys. But you 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 came over, and I remember one time you had had a meeting with then President Barack Obama, and so you were a little late. And there was a new guy there, uh, one of my neighbors, and I think we met for like two hours that night. And shockingly, you talked a lot uh, during those <laughs> Shock two hours. <laughs> Shocking. And it was funny because afterwards my neighbor said, man, who was that dude? I, I swear I've seen that guy before. I'm like, that was Kurt Warner. He goes, you got, I'm sitting next to Kurt Warner for two hours. I had no idea it was him. And he's talking about this meeting with Barack Obama. And I had no idea. Like, who's this dude? Do you remember what you – forget the Bible. Sorry. What, do you, what did you say to Barack Obama? Do you remember that? You, you know, I actually had a couple interactions with him. You know, the first one was after the Super Bowl. Um, I remember, you know, talking to Mark Dalton – as I was coming home and I was driving on the interstate and got a call from Mark saying, hey, uh, you're going to get a call in a couple minutes from, you know, an unknown number, a blocked number. Uh, make sure you pick up. It's going to be, you know, President Obama. And so that was the first time that we talked after the Super Bowl. He just kind of congratulated me on his career. And basically we, we had some fun that, you know, he was cheering for me because I was an old guy like he was and, and playing in the Super Bowl. But that was our first interaction. Then he came back through 
Arizona to speak, and we had the good fortune of uh, me, my, my wife, and my daughter meeting him at the airport and getting a chance to just sit down with him. It was a nice conversation early in his presidency where the conversation was just, you know, how can we pray for you? You know, how, how can we be there for you from a distance? And, you know, I'll never forget the you know, comment he made is pray that I get it right is all he said. And you know, I thought that was pretty cool that it was important to him to just get it right, whatever that looks like. Because, you know, as you go into that kind of role, you never know what getting sure. it right looks like as you're faced with a lot of different things. But, you know, that's how it came about is just knowing that he was coming into town. And I think our goal is always to support our leaders in our country and do what we can to uh, to make a difference. And so it was a nice brief conversation to, um, you know, kind of compliment the call after the Super Bowl. And, um, you know, it was, it was kind of nice to, to be able to follow him and know what the heart of the man was all about. Look, I've always appreciated your faith, how willing you've been to talk about your faith and how positive you always are. I'll never forget this moment. After we lose the Super Bowl, I'm coming down the elevator from the press box. And for me, you know, because I work at ESPN, I'm doing so many national games. Like, for me, this is a labor of love. It's it's a chance to root for a team. Right. This is my team. It's my 20th year doing this. I love doing the Cardinal games because I get to be a fan. So I was distraught, furious after the Super Bowl. Um, I'm coming down the elevator. I'm walking through the tunnel in Tampa. And I've always kind of had this rule. I, I – don't know if anybody else has or it's just me like after a loss don't look at the players like just walk straight ahead keep your eyes down I did it one time when Emmett Smith before you got here when we returned to Dallas and Roy Williams lit him up and he separated his shoulder so I had to look as we were going on the plane and Emmett was like dead asleep I don't know if he's really asleep or he just didn't want anybody bothering him the other time was you after the Super Bowl I'm walking through the tunnel and I'm like okay I think I see Kurt out of the corner of my eye outside the locker room I'm like, don't look at Kurt. Like, they just lost the Super Bowl. He's probably furious. Just don't look. So I kind of looked out of the corner of my eye and did a double take and looked again, and you were smiling. So I figured, okay, he's looking at me, and he's got a smile on his face, so I guess I should engage. I came over to you, and I'll never forget you said, it was so amazing the things that God did with our team this year. And you also talked about, I felt like, you know, I did everything that I could this year. And you had such a positive attitude in a time where I'm sure most people, including me at the time, and I didn't even play in the game, were still in shock over what had just happened. As you look back, do you still have that same view of that year? Or are there things about that game or about that season that you still play over and over in your mind (laughs) of, man, I wish I would have done this differently? I think you always have that. You know, when you don't get the end result that you want, you're always going to think and relive things. And obviously now that I'm in the media and cover the Super Bowl every year, they force me to have to think (laughs) about some of those things, um, you know, each and every year. But here's the thing is that unfortunately in our culture and in our sport, we've come to the point where we feel like you can only win if you have more points on the scoreboard. And – Something that I've learned in life is that you can win when you lose. And that, to me, was what that journey was all about for me and for that team, was what we accomplished that year and where we were when I got here and the mindset of everybody in the locker room and the organization. And there was no belief. There was no hope. And we could have said whatever we wanted. There was nobody that believed we would ever have success. Even as we were going through that journey, we were the worst playoff team in the history, you know, people talking about things like that. And to watch a group of guys come together and start to believe that they can do something that a short period of time before they never believed. And to watch that run and to watch us get there. And again, going into halftime. Everybody in the locker room were saying, oh, we got no chance. Kurt just lost the Super Bowl for (laughs) us. Game over. Blah, blah, blah. Here we are, two and a half minutes to go. We take the lead in the Super Bowl. And now everybody once again are going, see, we've got a team that can win the Super Bowl. we got a team that can do anything we want to do and accomplish anything we set our mind to. And, again, it doesn't work out that way because we've got some great players on the other side that make great plays, and they win the Super Bowl. You tip your hat and you say, well done to them. That's what the Super Bowl is all about. But we won that year. I won that year. And 
you know, I think that is a, a great message that we lose sight of way too often is that winning doesn't have to be having more points on the scoreboard. That team and what was accomplished and this organization, this organization is on a different trajectory now because of what we accomplished that year or those three years and what we did um, when, when we were going good. And that to me is what life is all about because unfortunately we don't all end up on the top of the mountain when it's all said and done. But that doesn't mean we didn't get close or we didn't go way beyond what we thought we could or, or we didn't accomplish what we set out to accomplish. And that to me is, is what I think about with that story. And, you know, we talked about the movie earlier. And, you know, you got the, the first chapter where we win the Super Bowl and, and it's kind of how everybody expects the movie to end. And, I, you know, I have a lot of people that always come up to me and go, man, I, I think the second half, the second chapter might even be better. And I think what a great movie that would be where in the end you don't win the game, Mm -hmm. but you still win. And the message that that shares with people, because we do, we we beat ourselves up because I wouldn't have enough points on the scoreboard. But there was, you know, there was a time in that game where everybody in the world said the Arizona Cardinals are going to be Super Bowl champions. I mean, has that ever been uttered before? No, and and nobody in that locker room ever believed it. So that, to me, was what that journey was all about. And that was the lesson that, that I learned along the journey is that, man, there's different ways to win in life, and we need to make sure that we keep the proper perspective on that. I'll never forget when Larry is running into the end zone. It was towards us where our booth was. We had a weird angle. Uh, it was kind of in the corner about the 10-yard line. Larry's running into the end zone looking up at the scoreboard. They're playing the music that – we play at the stadium when the Cardinals score, and we're going nuts in the booth. And I look over, and there's a booth right next to us full of NFL people only, and they're dying laughing and cheering. I mean, to your point, I think that was the moment everybody said, my goodness, the Arizona Cardinals are going to win the Super yeah. Bowl. And obviously it, it, it didn't end the way we all wanted it to. I am curious what you said at halftime, because I remember throwing my headset off, not just because of the play, but because I screwed up the call. I, I thought it was William Gay instead of uh, um, who had the interception? Oh my goodness, my head. Oh, Harrison, <laughs> yeah, James Harrison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember you found out. I'm like, yeah. dude, you mistook James Harrison for <laughs> William Gay, and I think I think I said you mistook uh, James Harrison for Anquan Bolden. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, what did you say at halftime? Because to your, you just said yeah. guys in the locker room were like, oh, here we go, well, we're not going to win. Here's the thing: I didn't say anything. Sometimes in life as a leader, there's nothing to say that can convince anybody what you're trying to convince them of. What I knew when I walked into the locker room, I knew what everybody was thinking. I knew, you know, the idea was, man, we had a chance to go ahead in the Super Bowl. Now we're down 10 points. We've got no momentum. This thing's over. And, you know, I could have given some rah-rah speech. Oh, we're going to – what I said was, as a leader, my goal is going to be what do I do in the first drive of the second half? They're going to watch me. When I walk into that huddle, all eyes will be on me. Like, dude, you just blew us the Super Bowl. Now what are you going to do? And so my job wasn't to try to motivate them then in the locker room. My job was to go, hey, guys, I ain't giving up. We got a chance. Give me the ball. We'll find a way to do this. We got this far. I believe in you guys. I want you to believe in me. And so I I really didn't say anything at halftime and just knew – that was going to be my goal in the second half was to prove to these guys, no matter what went against us all year long or, or been against us at, at any point in time, we're going to let that go and we're going to go play our brand of football and, and we're going to show people that we belong here. And that's exactly what we did. And, you know, it was that process that yeah. we make a play and you know, make a throw. And now you start seeing guys going, oh, we're still he pretty threw good. the interception, but he's not giving up. Right. Like, he's not, he doesn't think this thing's over. And that's when you start to get those guys back. So leadership looks a lot of different ways, and sometimes you got to know when to say something and when it's more about action. Tim Hightower scored the go-ahead touchdown at State Farm Stadium to win the NFC Championship on a pass that you threw, obviously. And I remember him telling me, and I think you may have told me the story as well, that he always would look at you and say to himself, and I think he even said it to you audibly, there's something about you. I don't know what it is. There's just something about you. And he said one time he just was like walking up and down the sideline looking at you like there's just something about you. That, and I think what he was trying to communicate was there's a reason people follow you. And I can't quite put my finger on it, but you make us better. 
And obviously you've realized that's a big reason why you're in the Hall of Fame is because you, you get people to believe and follow and to do things that maybe they didn't think they were capable of. That it factor that it's hard to find. Not a lot of guys have that. Is that something you had to cultivate or is that always there? Is that one of the reasons why you went from where you were playing in arena football to being one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time? It's the elusive question, right? The it factor. Where does it come from? Who has it? How do you get it? Um, I don't know, but, but but what I think when it comes to the it factor, I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. Obviously, you're good at what you do, and, and there's things that you do that, that can be unique. But I've always believed the it factor and getting other guys to follow you has as much to do with inner confidence as anything else. And so I, I truly believe that, I've never had a confidence problem, uh, that first and foremost. But I believe my journey, when you go through the journey that I went through, and there were so many times to go, okay, you're not good enough, you can't do this, it's not going to happen, blah, blah, blah. There's so many times that you can lose that confidence. But once you get through it, you start saying to yourself, there is nothing that I cannot do. There's nothing that I can't accomplish, and specifically when there's a ball in my hands, because that's where I felt at home. I felt like that was what I was born to do. And I believe that is what kind of trickles off of you when guys are watching you mm-hmm. and guys are seeing you and they're wondering what's different. What's different is that I, I never felt like I was shaken, whether I was benched three times in the NFL, uh, you know, whether you lose a Super Bowl, you win a Super Bowl, whether you're working in a grocery store. I never lost that, that confidence of who I was, what I was capable of, and even like in the Super Bowl. I didn't care if the other 10 guys believed or not. It wasn't going to shake me, and I was, I'll do, do it by myself if I have to. And so, but that was always my mindset, and I think that's something when you talk about the it factor in those guys, that's what they have is they have an inner confidence that says nothing will stop me from getting where I want to go. And when other guys see that, it's like – I don't know what it is, but right. I'll just follow that guy yeah. because that guy, you know, Tom Brady, I think, is a great example is that, you know, there's times where you go, man, I don't know if he's playing great football. But you talk to the people in Tampa last year, and every one of them said when he came in, we automatically believed. We just saw him, and we saw the way that he worked, and, and, and he instilled something in us that was different. And I think that's the ultimate factor when we talk about the it. It's not how hard you throw a football or how many wow plays you can make. It's do you enter that environment with a level of confidence that says, follow me and we'll go where, where we want to go if you just believe along with me. And uh, I just I think that was what I had. And whether it was partly innate, partly because of the journey or, you know, some you know, ratio outside of that, I do believe the journey had a big part of, uh, of being able to shape that. So, man, I, I, you know, I remember, I, you probably remember when we opened this building, um, you know, third game of the year, I got booed out of the stadium. I do remember. You know, I I got mm-hmm. benched after that, and I running off the and first time in my life I had run out of a stadium getting booed. Um, you know, and that you know that's shocking for anybody. I think, especially when I had success and and, and you believe that you still can play at a level. And uh, and I remember running out of here going, my gosh, you know, how, how did we get to this point? Um, so, but you have moments like that, and never once did I go. They just don't see it. You know, they just don't know. And I never held it against the fans because I understood what was happening on the field. I understood what the, their perception was. But I never let that become my perception. Is like, oh, they're just missing it, you know. We'll be back and, and we'll have another shot and, and we'll show them that, you know, because when I came here, a lot of people had, well, best years are behind him. He can't really play anymore. And this is just, you know, validation of that. Uh, for me, I, I always knew what was inside there. And just sometimes circumstances – don't play out exactly like you want to, but it's even in moments like that where I just, you know, for me it was like, all right, I get it. I understand it. I can see it from a realistic standpoint, but it never once made me waver in, in what I could be or, or what was inside of me. Was it harder to take the Cardinals to the Super Bowl as a proven player, albeit a, a proven player who, as you just said, people started to question? Uh, will he, you know, was it a flash in the pan with – the Rams because it didn't end well there and then things didn't go great in New York and you just talked about how things started here with the Cardinals. Was it harder to take the Cardinals to 
the Super Bowl as a proven guy yet doubted, or was it harder to take the Rams as a guy that nobody knew about, or you don't know what you don't know? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely harder to, to take the Cardinals where we went. To me, it was as much about mindset, where this organization was, what the lack of belief was when, when I got here, not just in me, but within the organization as much as anything. So that struggle to change perception was a lot harder. Um, you know, obviously there was, you know, there were some things when I first came on the scene and, and all of those questions um, and living up to a certain expectation of playing, that was hard. But I was, I was surrounded by great talent. I had guys around me that, that carried me, um, you know, or could carry me at any point in time. And as you said, at that time, I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, I, that's the funny thing is when people look back at my journey and they talk about the story, right, the things they hang on to, Dave, are, hey, he sat on the bench for four years in college. And then he went to Green Bay and he got cut after a couple of weeks in Green Bay. And he worked in a grocery store and then arena football in Europe and, and, and all this negative stuff. And what I always tell people is the ironic thing is that all I remembered about my journey was, oh, I got to play one year in college. I was the player of the year in our, in our conference. I got to play three years in arena football and I was in the championship game two of those three years and was the best player in the league all three years. Same happened in Europe. So when everybody else is looking at the things that I hadn't accomplished or the things that went against me, I was always going, oh, but wait, when the ball was in my hands, I've never not been successful. So when I got there, it was like, oh, this is just football. Like it's, oh yeah, it's the NFL. I get it. And you know, this might be my last chance. Yeah. But I got a football in my hand. I got a football in my hands. I will play good football. And We'll do what we do. I mean, I remember even that first year where we were kind of setting the league on fire, and I remember thinking to myself, why are we punting three times a game? Because I'm coming from the <laughs> arena league where you don't punt. You score every time you touch it. And so that was my expectation that yeah. nobody else realizes because all they see is, oh, my gosh, this guy's coming from a grocery store, and he's in the NFL. How is this even possible? My mindset was completely different. It was much harder when I got here to Arizona, A, because – not only did I have to change the perception within an organization of, of what they could accomplish, I had to change people's perception about me. Sure. Is that, yeah, they knew I was good way back when, but when I got here, I mean, you can talk to Todd Haley, and, I mean, they just felt, oh, his best years are behind him. He can't – he's not that same guy anymore. So when I was coming in here, it was kind of like, oh, he's a seat filler until we get the next guy. And so a big part of this process was also convincing everybody, well, just give me a shot here. like. Right. I can still play if you give me that opportunity and, and you allow me to, to showcase what, what I'm capable of doing and, and we build an offense around what I'm capable of doing. I can still play really good football. So having to do both of those things, and again, you get benched. And now it's like, okay, I get it. I understand why. But I got to convince these guys again that we can be better and, and, and collectively and me personally can be better and, and we can do some things here. That was the hard part of the process. When you talk about changing perception or changing culture, that is much harder. Um, you know, doing what we did in St. Louis wasn't easy. I mean, what we did for three years and what we accomplished and, and you know, the expectations that were there, you know, there were some challenges in that, but there was nothing like coming here and, and having to change this culture and perception sure. uh, from both of those standpoints that, um, that at the end of the day, you know, people always asking me, you know, what, what parts of your career, what was the best time of your career, what are you most proud of in your career? And without a doubt, what I'm most proud of is what we accomplish here. And where I left the organization compared to where it was when I got here is probably the thing in my career that I'm most proud of. And yes, I, I won the Super Bowl, and that was great, and the MVP and, and all of that. I'm very proud of those things, especially in the first year, yes. But there's something different because we talk about leadership and you talk about legacy. There's something different when you go and you change a perception of an organization and you change the perception that a person has about themselves. Um, there's something powerful in that. And, and at the end of the day, it's probably what I'm most proud of in my career. Just two more questions on you, and then we'll get into the 2021 season. There was a, a fateful night in 2003. It was the last day of the regular season, and uh, Josh McCown, who was the quarterback for the Cardinals, throws a pass that's caught by Nate Poole for a touchdown to win the game in the regular season finale. That win 
knocked the Cardinals out of the number one spot in the NFL draft, where they would have taken Eli Manning. Instead, they take Larry Fitzgerald because they drop to number three. Eli Manning goes to New York. You're in New York. And obviously, they had plans for Eli. So you were just with the Giants that one year. Then you come to Arizona, and it's year two for Larry Fitzgerald. Larry was 20 years old when he came into the NFL. He had incredible talent, but he was young. He, he has said many times, look, I, I needed to mature. I needed to grow. How did your relationship impact him, do you think? And when did you know that Larry could be elite? Well, I don't think it was hard to see when you first got here and, and you see Larry on the field that he's got the ability to be elite. Um, <clears throat> You know, it's funny that one of my favorite stories about Larry um, goes back to really the first weekend that I was here in Arizona, and we were practicing, and I invited some of the guys over for dinner just to kind of get to know guys and, and connect with them a little bit, and Larry came over, and I remember when we were sitting down for dinner, my wife just said, just promise me, no football talk, all right? We're just here to get to know the guys. I don't want to talk football. My wife's not a big football fan, so she just wanted to kind of get to know everybody, and so Larry came over, and somewhere in the middle of the, the dinner, there was just something that happened in practice uh, that was kind of you know on my mind because I kept you know, looking and talking to him. And so at some point, I was just like, hey, Larry, in practice today. And, of course, my wife kicks me under the <laughs> table like, come on, we're not going here. But, you know, I just told him about something in practice. And I'm like, man, if, if you just do this, man, you are going to be unstoppable on that route. And I remember Larry kind of looking back at me and, you know, had kind of a smile on his face and, and uh, you know, gave me this look and he's like, okay, Kurt, but, you know, I think that the, the mindset was kind of simply, I'm the last person you need to worry about. And, and he mentioned in, in, the, in the conversation, he's like, you know, I'm good enough right now. <laughs> and, again, I think the idea was not in arrogance, but simply when you're looking at the rest of the guys, I, you know, I'm probably not where you need to start in terms of, what we're trying to build here. And I remember looking back at him and I'm like, Larry, at the end of the day, do you just want to be good enough? And we just kind of left it there. So, you know, as we progress and as we see things and and, uh, as we build our relationship, you know, you watch Larry and you watch him start growing and you watch him start evolving and you watch the the work that he's doing. And when you talk to him and you have a conversation, he was always willing to apply those things on the field to become great. And you just watch the ascension of Larry Fitzgerald to one of the greatest players that that the league has ever seen. And I'll never forget, fast forward – to uh, 2009. So Larry was my closest friend on the team. So he knew before anybody else that I was going to retire. I had told him, we had talked about it throughout the middle of the season um, that I was going to be done. And and I can't remember where we were going, but we had gotten on a a jet together and had a conversation. And I remember him looking at me and he goes, Kurt, you remember that conversation we had, you know, that first weekend that you were in town? And I'm like, of course I remember. He goes, I just want you to know that I never forgot that conversation and that idea that from that point forward, I never wanted to just look at things as being good enough. I wanted to be the best. And that to me speaks to who Larry Fitzgerald is, is that he was one of our best players. He would have been one of our best players through the the length of his career without a doubt because of his talent level, the kind of young man he was. But you know, I mean, you know Larry. He's kind of a, ahead of his years. He was more mature than most guys that come in at his age. And he made that commitment very early on from that one conversation to go, okay, I see what Kurt's trying to say here. He sees in me something special. Now I need to tap into it and be great. And we've seen that throughout his career. And I think one of the greatest examples of that was when Bruce Arians came here. When I was here, we tried to move Larry inside numerous times. And Larry was just like, I'm not having it. I'm good out here. I'm comfortable out here. I don't have to think as much. Right. Just let me be me out here. And we tried, and we just could not get him to buy in. Then, obviously, Bruce comes in, and, and I don't think Bruce really gave him a choice. But I remember talking to him numerous times through that se- sequence, and he's like, gosh, I hate it in here. It's fast. I'm not comfortable. I don't like it. Uh, you know, I don't want to be here playing inside. But to his credit, he bought in, and he bought in, and he became a blocker. And he started to understand the inside. And maybe statistically, from a catch standpoint, he has his greatest year with Bruce Arians when he's inside catching 100 passes. And 
talked to him just a couple years ago, and I remember him going, man, they're using me outside too much. You know, <laughs> that he got so comfortable back inside. But to his credit, that he had the ability to evolve and work to be great no matter what his role was. And those are the things that I'll remember on why Larry Fitzgerald is one of the greatest that we've ever seen. It's not because of those great spectacular catches we saw back in 07 and 08 and, and 09. It's because of his ability and his work ethic to go, I'm not satisfied. What is it? You know, I remember a time that Todd Haley challenged him to be a better blocker downfield. You know, a lot of times it was catch, get down, or, or to run after catch. And every time somebody challenged him, he goes, okay, let me show you. I can do this. I can do that. But all those things and that mindset of his is really what's catapulted him to the place where, you know, he's a legend of the game. He's one of the greatest that we've ever seen. Um, and I think all the way back to that conversation and how that stuck with him and that imparted something on him that he wanted to, to be great. When I talk to Larry or text with Larry, I, I don't talk football with him. I usually ask him about the Suns or other things, in part because I know he doesn't want to be asked about retirement. <laughs> yeah, sure. And my gut, and I've said this from the middle of last year, is I think he's done. I, I, I would be surprised if he plays again. Are you in the same boat? Would you be surprised if we see Larry on a football field again? I won't say I'll be surprised. With it playing out as long as it has, um, I think there's, there's a little part of me that goes, why would it play out this long if he, didn't, if he isn't thinking possibly about coming back and looking at the roster and looking at what they've built here? Because the only thing that he's playing for anymore is, is to win a championship, is that you know I've texted him numerous times and just, man, I'm sorry I didn't get you that championship because his greatness has been so great that – I just feel like it needs to be anchored with a championship. And I know, you know, although that will not define him and, um, you know, and he, he's much bigger than that, I know he still wants that. And, you know, it's one of the reasons we – he's talked about retirement with me for the last three or four years. I don't know. We'll see. You know, can I be an integral part of what we're doing? But most importantly, does this team have a chance to compete? And I really feel like this team is in a position with the guys they brought in, assuming they, they play up to their potential and stay healthy and all that stuff, to compete. And so that part of me just has me thinking there may just be one more run. But the one thing that I would say is this isn't like Larry. If Larry was going to come back and play, I kind of expected him to be here day one. You know, not a guy like, sure. oh, you guys go through the first couple weeks and then I'll show up. In typical Larry fashion, what I kind of believe is that, you know, he hates the, the limelight. Right. And that he's going to kind of wait for this thing to get going where 32 teams are practicing and there's all these new storylines. And then he's going to sneak in and go, hey, I'm retiring. I'm done. So That's what I think, too. So nothing is about him yeah. in that situation. So, yes, everything in me says I think he is done. But I've just been really surprised that it's played out this long without us knowing that it just keeps kind of that window of opportunity open that, hey, maybe. What you said is exactly how I felt all along, knowing Larry that he doesn't want to talk about it. So in the five – I mean, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. That five-year clock, whether it starts in August or February, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I, I've always thought he's not going to say anything, or if he does, it's just going to be he's going to drop it in some interview in the middle of November. Oh, like, yeah, I'm done. Yeah, I'm yeah. done. I'm, I'm on, on to something else. Right. Uh, I don't want to bury the lead because you just said something that caught my attention, and that's you think that this Cardinal team has a chance. Would you say they're championship caliber, or is that a stretch? Where, where do you view, given the division, how tough this division sure. is, where do you see the Cardinals in 2021? Well, I mean, I think it all is going to start with Kyler, is that, you know, I've – always been a firm believer that that position dictates whether you're a good team or a championship team. And there's no question that we've seen Kyler do some really, really special stuff um, in his early career. We just haven't seen the consistency level yet to make me say, based on what I've seen in the past, just by adding these pieces, they're definitely a championship contender. I need to see more and I need to see consistency from him because what you know, especially now with the playoffs the way they are and the extra team in there, you got to beat some really, really good teams week in and week out to get to a Super Bowl. You don't fluke your way into a Super Bowl. Oh, you know, we 
found our way, you know, stumbling through that one, and we stumbled through another one, now we're in the Super Bowl. It doesn't happen like that. Mm -hmm. So that, to me, is the biggest question, is where does he go in year three? I mean, we've talked about it. I mean, he was one of the front runners for the MVP halfway through the season last year. So he has been extremely productive. But I still look and say, to me, to be a championship-caliber quarterback, you have to be able to do it inside the pocket over and over and over again. Yes, you're going to give us some special. I get that. But I don't think you can win consistently with just the special. you got to be more consistent. So that's where I believe it starts. If you get that from Kyler, and then I saw the second piece, and these guys stay healthy. Yeah, you know, Because A.J., we know he's a great player. J.J., been a great player. Rodney Hudson, a really good player in this league. You know, three big signings that they had. All have been – you know, kind of bouncing around, dealing with injuries, haven't been healthy. Um, but I think if those guys stay healthy, you've got a collection of talent here that can compete with anybody in the league. How it meshes, how it comes together, all of that stuff, the quarterback play, of course. So I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, I, I look at this team and see where they were last year, and I say this is a better football team without a doubt this year than they were last year. And so, because of that, I have to believe they're going to compete. You're right. Division's going to be tough. San Francisco is going to be much better. No question. Healthy. Rams, you assume they're going to be better with Matthew Stafford or yep. still going to be really, really good. Seattle's always there. I mean, yep. I, I, you know, we probably look at them right now and go, oh, they're the least exciting team, but they won the division last year Absolutely. and won 12 games. So, uh, it's a really, really – and that's when I talk about consistency, right? You don't have breaks. You don't have – Two games, especially when you're playing in this division where you go, oh, well, if we don't play well, we can sneak a, a couple wins here. Nope, you're going to have to show up and play every week. And so this team could be better than they were last year and have a worse record because the other teams that they're going to be playing are better and their schedule's tough. But I do believe if Kyler makes that jump and, and you know grows in that position at least a little bit, this team has a chance to, without a doubt, compete for the playoffs and, and possibly win the division. The offense, what do you think – because you talked about Kyler, but in terms of scheme, offensively, what do you think we need to see? What changes do the Cardinals need to make for them to take that next step and be a playoff team and be a championship-caliber club? You know, I, I think Cliff, Coach Kingsbury, is, is coming into his own as well. I, I think part of the process over the last couple of years is figuring out how to call plays at the NFL level, designing plays um, for success – is that you know a lot of the stuff that we've seen, I've seen a lot of college-esque type stuff, the quick throws, the bubble screens, all of that stuff, which is great. You're going to get yards in this league because of the rules by doing that. And so you can put up a lot of yards. What really wins games for you is what you do in the red zone. And they've kind of struggled in the red zone outside of where Kyler becomes the dual threat and he runs and passes. The ability to create opportunities in the red zone and easier opportunities and better opportunities for their offense to – be consistently good down there, I believe is is going to be, you know, the biggest issue with this football team. I'm not worried about them moving the football. I'm not worried about Kyler making a lot of plays. I'm not worried about, you know, him being able to score some touchdowns and doing the zone reads in the red zone. But that to me is where I've seen the biggest questions with this team okay. is it comes to play design. And great design and great playmaking in the red zone is something that they've lacked and something that I think has held them back a little bit. So that's probably the key piece from an offensive standpoint that I'm watching for from Kyler and from Coach um, going into this year. We started this podcast talking about the movie, talking about your work as an analyst for NFL Network and Westwood One, but there's much more to Kurt Warner, as everybody knows, than work. Talk about ministry and charity work that you have going on right now before we wrap up. Well, here. the biggest thing that we're doing right now is uh, our passion is is our Treasure House. And so Treasure House is a community living facility for young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, all based off of my son, who's 32 now, but suffered a traumatic brain injury when he was four months old. Um, and once he kind of got through high school, we always wondered what was next. What was his future? What's his purpose? What can he accomplish? And I know that there's a lot of families out there with children like, like Zach, um, that wonder what's next, what, what do they have? What kind of life, uh, and, and what are the possibilities for them? How do we dream for our child with disabilities? So we created treasure house 
um, about five years ago. Uh, and it's out in Glendale. It's not too far here from the stadium, out on 75th Avenue. Uh, we just filled up uh, our first treasure house. We've got a waiting list now. And so that's kind of where our passion is right now, is we want to make sure that every family like ours that has a, a child with challenges like ours has the opportunity to dream bigger and believe in the possibilities of what life can be even amongst those challenges. You know, we say all the time, we've got seven kids, as you know, that all of our kids have disabilities. They all have unique abilities, but they all have disabilities. And it's just a different way of, of seeing those things. And so, Zach, there are certain things that he has challenges to do. But there's also unbelievable potential mm -hmm. and unbelievable impact that he has. And so Treasure House is designed to be able to allow – that peer group to come together and impact one another. It's you know, designed to allow these families and these kids to, to dream in a way that they've never dreamed before and open up the possibilities. And there is such a huge need, not just here in the Valley, but around the world, around the country, for facilities like this. And so that's where our, our passion lies, is that we're trying to get this one right. Uh, we're trying to figure out all the pieces, and then we want to branch out and we want to build treasure houses in every neighborhood. So there is no family that... Uh, has to wonder what the next steps are, what the, what the big picture purpose is for their child. And um, so that's our greatest passion right now. That's where we're driving a lot of our emphasis from a, from a charity standpoint. And, uh, and it's been incredibly rewarding, even though it's been incredibly tough sure. uh, as you figure out these new worlds and what you have to do. But hearing parents come up to you and say how life-changing it was to hear these kids talk to their parents when their parents are like, hey, you're going to come home for the weekend? And they're like, well, this is my home. Treasure House is my home now. Exactly what we wanted to yeah. create for our son and, and, and for these families. And it's been, uh, it's been a labor of love. QBconfidential.com? Yeah. Yes, QBconfidential.com. Um, you know, what I've realized over the years is that, man, I, I want to be able to have a larger impact. I want to be able to you know, to use my skill and knowledge and experience to be able to impart that on the next generation, whether it's coaches or players, because I just think I have a unique knowledge of this game and, and a way to be able to share that. So I've always felt, well, I guess it's limited. You know, I've got my three or four high school quarterbacks. I got my few guys that I work with every summer, but man, there's all these kids out there that, that want to learn and, and, and want to play at the next level and all of this stuff. And there's a lot of guys out there, quite frankly, that don't really know what they're coaching. Sure. And I always feel bad for these guys that whatever, they're paying however much money to go work with these gurus. Right. And I look at these gurus and I go, what the heck is he teaching him? <laughs> and so uh, I bought a camera, touchscreen, uh, video monitor, and uh, I hold up in my, uh, in my office for a number of hours and started building this. And I think it's really incredible. I don't think there's anything else out there like it uh, from a quarterback perspective. Uh, it's one of those things where we get in the classroom and, and I talk on the blackboard and, and kind of teach them football IQ. We, of course, go on the field uh, because technique is so important to me, and we go uh, and we do some of that. We open up the playbook because I'm so passionate about play design and play understanding and knowing what you're doing on every play. Uh, there's a mindset piece that I call outside the box. A huge part of this process is do you have the right mindset? And then the last piece is, uh, is kind of a film study where I'm able to dive into NFL film and talk about what I've been talking about in the rest of the platform and kind of show it on the big screen and show people how to watch tape and what I'm looking at. And so it's got so many different facets to it. And now it's a way to be able to reach the masses um, with this platform and with my experience. Kurt, you're awesome. You continue to inspire me and so many people. I When we came up with this idea to do the podcast, you're the first person I thought of. So I really appreciate you helping me launch this thing. But again, I, I just admire your your faith, your integrity, and your willingness to tell your story because you know how it can impact others and change lives. So thanks, brother. Appreciate, Appreciate you, my you man. so much. Good luck with this whole thing. All right, Kurt. Thanks. So there you have it. Hall of Famer Kurt Warner on the first ever Dave Pash podcast. We won an hour. We could have gone an hour and a half, maybe two hours. Kurt had NFL network duties, or we certainly could have told a lot more great stories about his days in the NFL and much more. Hopefully you got a ton out of that. There was so much great stuff there. How about what Kurt said to the team at halftime of Super Bowl 43? Nothing, right? He said he had to get the team to believe again through his actions, not his words. 
by starting off the second half with a great drive. Kurt, like me, thinks Larry Fitzgerald will retire and do it quietly. And I loved how Fitz, years later, told Kurt that he never forgot the advice that Kurt gave him during their very first meeting. Hope you enjoyed the first ever Dave Pash podcast. So glad you're along for the ride. We have some great guests coming up. All-Pro Safety Buda Baker, Cardinals head coach Cliff Kingsbury, outstanding ESPN NFL analyst Mina Kimes, and many more. For all the updates on the Dave Pash podcast, you can follow us on Twitter, at PashPod, or also my personal account, at Dave Pash. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed the first edition of the Dave Pash podcast with Hall of Famer, Kurt Warner.